Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. It's a busy time between Europe and China. Since the end of last year, we've almost lost track of the number of visits by leaders and senior officials from both sides to each other. But Chinese State Councillor and Foreign Minister Qing Gang was the most recent one. From the 8th to the 12th, Qing visited uh, Germany, France and Norway, during which he proposed three principles for maintaining stable relations. China likes to propose principles, I know, but they can illuminate our path ahead when, and I would even say only when the right principles are laid and agreed upon, can there be certainty. So what exactly are these principles? What has been achieved as a result of such diplomacy? What remains to be done? And what does it have to do with you? Welcome to a special edition of The Point with me, Li Xin, coming to you from Beijing. I'm pleased to be joined from Paris by Sebastian Parimoni, researcher of Schiller Institute in France. From Shanghai by Professor Jian Jingbo, Deputy Director of the Center for China-Europe Relations at Fudan University. From Beijing by Rick Dunham, Co-Director of the Global Business Journalism Program at Tsinghua University. And here in the studio in Beijing by Anna Tangen, Senior Fellow of Taihe Institute. Institute, a think tank. The warmest welcome to all of you. Sebastian, let me go to you and thank you very much for getting up at this inconvenient hour to participate in our show. Now, we have actually, as I said, been looking at a series, a string of visits by leaders and senior officials from both sides, from the European side, for instance, since the end of last year, uh, the more prominent ones that come to mind, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, Spanish Prime Minister, French President, uh, and of course, there are also the European European Commission leader and uh, Europe, European Council leader, so on and so forth. And from the Chinese side, we have Vice President Han Zheng, we have Wu Wang Yi, uh, China's top diplomat, and of course now Qing Gang. So uh, how do you look at the whole background of Qing's visit? Where does his visit fit in to the sequence of events? So what I can say is that it's fascinating to see the increasing uh, activity, diplomacy of the Chinese with the EU, because let's say in Europe, we are in a kind of ambiguous or not to say schizophrenic situation, because we went from the characterization of China as a systemic rival, you know, in 2019. Uh, and uh, since then, the China-EU relation was very not so good. You have a lot of uh, neoconservative and propaganda in Europe concerning China. And so now you see that the relation is going to, at least China wants to stabilize the situation. And some in Europe wants to, but we cannot say that we have a unified Europe today. For example, you have two cases. That's the case of a German foreign minister, Annalena Barbuck. You went to China saying that we have to stop the human rights, you know, narrative and so on and so forth to which the, foreign, the Chinese foreign minister said that they don't want to be lectures on human rights, you know, by the West. And you have the foreign, uh, the foreign uh, French minister, Mrs. Colonna, who said that China is very important for peace and stability mm -hmm. in the world. So today, of course, you, some people want stabilization and some don't want it. So you don't have a unified Europe today on this question of the normalization with the relation with China. Mm -hmm. So probably against that backdrop, Qing Gang proposed the three principles, as I mentioned, for China-Europe relations last Friday. He called for the adherence to an inclusive worldview, the commitment to a progressive view of history, and 
win-win, as I translate. Um, Professor Chien, let's get down to the details, if we can, in such a short period of time. What exactly do these principles mean? For instance, the inclusive uh, worldview. What does Mr. Ching or what does China want to say about it? I think there are several meanings. Firstly, politically, uh, it means uh, uh, China hopes uh, European Union or European countries to respect to mutually respect each other, uh, respect each other's uh, social and political systems, and uh, not so-called systemic rivals between Europe and China. And economically, I think it means to find chances to strengthen cooperation in the future, and not uh, de-risk or decouple it. Uh, so at the I want to say in global governance, China hopes that EU can, uh, European countries can find chances to cooperate in. Uh, in, in global governance to deal with the global issues. So I think uh, there are, uh, but, but I want to say uh, some points may be accepted by uh, the European side, but some others will not be accepted. So um, I, I think um, it, it's better for both sides to find the common ideas. And then uh, according to the uh, common uh, ground, they, they will find some uh, common actions to uh, strengthen the cooperation mm -hmm. in the future. Mm -hmm. uh, Rick, um, watching all of this from your perspective, uh, what is new about Qing's proposal this time and how do you look at the reactions of uh, European countries during his visit this time? Well, I, I don't think that there is a lot new in terms of the rhetoric. Uh, I mean, the, China, China has talked about win-win uh, cooperation um, since the days of Deng, Deng Xiaoping. Uh, but uh, I, I do, I do, and I do think these principles are something that you can't really disagree with, the idea we should be inclusive rather than exclusive. Um, the, 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 the idea basically that, uh, that we should have a progressive view of history, which would mean that, uh, that we should not look at uh, the years when Europe was uh, an economic colonizer and a, and a uh, military colonizer of the rest of the world, that we should respect everybody. But it's all, I mean, really what's, what's important here is uh, how it plays out. And what you can see right now is China is trying to repair relations with the European Union that were damaged greatly during the pandemic and after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, where there were some severe sanctions that uh, China has uh, has had problems with. And the United States is talking about uh, trying to uh, even ratchet up sanctions. And uh, I think what China is trying to do is uh, is to show is to try to show Europe that Europe can be an independent player that Europe does not have to be dependent on the United States it's not us against them. Aina, what is your take on these principles and the announcement of them? You were nodding your head when Rick was saying that there is not not much new that come out of it. But still, uh, why does he decide to highlight these three messages? Win-win, of course, it's a long-standing uh, position of China, and then inclusiveness. What does he mean by inclusiveness here? You know, when you talk about China-Europe relations. Uh, who does he have in mind? And also when he talks about progressive uh, view of history, I'm sure he's not talking about, I, I'm, I'm afraid I, I, I don't see it as him talking about Europe in the colonizing, as a colonizer, but rather during the Cold War days, you know, Cold, Cold War years when, when um, 
countries were picking sides according to their ideological camp. So your take, Aina. Okay, so let's let's not dance around the elephant in the room. This is aimed squarely at the United States. Uh, China is very interested in seeing which way uh, Europe is going to go. This will have profound uh, geopolitical and economic consequences. You know, recall the Belt and Road Initiative. A lot of trade uh, with the European Union. Uh, was kind of a bellwether. That's why people wanted to, uh, that, that's why they had the Belt and Road Initiative, a backdoor to Europe. But if Europe decides that it does not want to be uh, in the same sphere as uh, China, if they keep talking about de-risking, which I don't know the difference between de-risking and decoupling is, um, yeah, uh, there will be changes. Uh, you'll see the, the Belt and Road Initiative swing even more to the global south and to Central Asia. Uh, and obviously you can see what's happening with Russia. I mean, one of the big issues for the United States post, uh, you know, the fall of the wall was they did not want Europe to get together with Russia. Russia's resources and Europe's manufacturing ability uh, could challenge the U.S. Uh, inadvertently, though, uh, the U.S. has pushed China and Russia together as well as the global south, making an even more formidable uh, econo I mean, economic and political influence in the world, not domination the way the U.S. has done it. So, you have you have very very big movements that are happening here, and you know Europe has to decide. And, mm -hmm. and as pointed out by our colleagues, they're very divided. They're very d divided, but it seems that the effort has been going on to decide. And the, the latest development on that is on the 12th of May, which is on the day when Chinese Foreign Minister left an informal meeting. Uh, I don't know whether there is any you know, connection between these two events, but it happened that the day was the same day. An informal meeting between European foreign ministers took place in Stockholm, where they discussed behind closed doors a paper on EU's China strategy. And according to the media, EU foreign policy chief Joseph Borrell said they backed reducing the bloc's economic dependence on China, but will now have to figure out how to make that a reality. But he also stressed that EU, the EU should not subscribe to an idea of a zero-sum game whereby there can only be one winner in a binary contest between the US and China. So Sebastian, let me get back to you. Um, do you think this informal meeting is important or does it mark kind of a milestone in EU's effort to find its unified uh, policy on China? Yes, it's revealed a big fight inside the European institution between what I said at the beginning, because those who want to sabotage the EU-China relationship and those who want to stabilize it. And during this meeting of the foreign minister, you have this discussion about de-risking with China. And Joseph Borrell himself said that, he said exactly that China is simultaneously a partner, a competitor, and a systemic rival. So you repeat it. So you have this debate. So it's very important that Germany and Italy said, no, we don't want to have this uh, debate about systemic rival. We will not support this paper, and we will go for stabilization of the EU-China relationship. So I think it's, it's, uh, it's revealed you know, the fight inside Europe to have a normalization with China in a period where you have to, to understand that we are in, in, the, in the brink of a financial crisis in the US, we are systemic financial risk. So everybody's talking about that. So, of course, the stabilization is uh, 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 fundamental, you know, to face this situation.
How much dependence, Professor Jian, how much dependence exactly is, um, does Europe have in terms of supply of critical um, resources from China? Because that seems to be on the European leaders' lips all the time, that they're only getting their critical uh, supplies from China, so they have to diversify. And how do you measure this kind of dependence? About the dependence, I want to say, yeah, from the point of the European Union, there are several uh, strategic dependence on China, on China's market. For example, uh, especially the rare uh, materials. I think this is the biggest challenge for uh, the European Union. And some 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 allergies, such as uh, some uh, sun allergy, for example, solar allergy. So I don't think there are so many um, so much higher dependence on China's market. Uh, in many fields, in some fields, I think they have some dependence, but but I think there is also uh, so many um, uh, cooperative uh, chances for both sides. Well, um, from my understanding, uh, European leaders were really, as Professor Jane just talked about, they're talking about semiconductor, solar panel, batteries, yeah. 5G, 6G, raw materials, of course, and uh, critical minerals. Aina, let me go to you here. Um, is that a risk really and how can you prove that by sourcing a lot of these materials from China or from any one particular market uh, is a risk? Well, it, it's the, the risk actually is the opposite way around. Uh, as the United States has found, when you start imposing these kind of artificial, um, uh, you know, it, changing the market, you actually increase prices uh, for your people. Right now, they have a tremendous amount of inflation. Um, I, I don't think it's good to underestimate the number of intermediate goods that are produced in China that are actually used in Europe and a lot of European, um, uh, you know, goods and services and things like that. So many things coming in, everything from chemical I mean, uh, you, you look at the, uh, the huge German chemical makers, they've actually closed uh, their shops in Germany and they've moved uh, their, uh, to China basically because they cannot produce uh, competitively anywhere else. So, but I, I want to draw attention to something that is not mentioned enough and that if you look at inflation in the United States and also Europe, you'll find that the inflation is happening in the service industries. And these are service, you know, these are tertiary economies where a tremendous amount of the economy is tertiary. So when you start looking at goods that are actually coming from China, that's not where the inflation is coming from. It's coming from within these own countries because people say, I want to have more money. I need more money to live. So at this juncture, they're not dealing with the internal pressures that they have from being tertiary economies and being so reliant in terms of economic means on uh, the services and the costs of them. Rick, your comments here, because uh, as an American, you obviously have uh, a very deep understanding of uh, what Ina just talked about. Do you agree or disagree? Well, I, I agree with him about the uh, inflationary uh, cost of, uh, of de-risking. But uh, right now, I, I think what Europe is doing, the, this whole idea of de-risking, does come out of the pandemic when when supplies were not reliable uh, and and secondarily after the Russian invasion uh, of Ukraine uh, the uh, Europe realized how dependent it was for natural resources and I think uh, that that is something that I mean in both of those cases that's what Europe is thinking about and yes it will be inflationary as 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 Einar uh, 
said, but uh, right, right now, I think there's also a r another risk coming from the United States, but understanding both Europe and China. That is, there's a, there is a, an economic risk, a financial risk of the U.S. financial system right now. There have been a number of banks, of regional banks, uh, that have uh, been purchased at fire sales. And I think Europe right now does want to try to control risks, and the risks from China may have to do with, uh, with some of these supplies of products. But from the United States, the question of risk, I think, has to do with the financial system. And both of these would be challenges to, to Europe going forward. Um, when you have over-reliance, let's say, in one market for some of your critical um, commodities, what should be the solution? Um, Sebastian, I'm going to go to you, but before that, uh, you know, we all know that French president has just announced that a Chinese group from Xiamen called XTC New Energy Materials, they are planning to set up a joint venture in Dunkirk with a French company called Orano to produce a lithium battery. Uh, for the European markets. That's an investment of 1.5 billion euros. <laughs> it seems to me that that is a way of de-risking if you're really talking about over-reliance for you know, key strategic products. Uh, it doesn't have to be the other way around where you, you harm each other's interest, Sebastian. Yes, it's very important what is just said because it's not a question of de-risking. For example, Macron gave an interview in Financial Times a few days ago saying that we need more industry in Europe and we need more sovereignty. And we have rediscovered that we need sovereignty. So, but Europe wants to be a superpower. You have this idea that Europe has to be a superpower to compete with the US on, on the one side and the China on the other side. So this is not the right way to see it, which is not a multipolar world. So, and I think what it was said about the financial crisis is very important because since the last 40 years in Europe, in the US, in Great Britain, we have only created speculative bubble with two quadrillions of, mil of dollars, you know, speculative financial assets, nothing to do with reality. And what we have seen in China, for example, it was a physical production. So I, I mean, we are in the, in the middle of a change and the systemic tricks of the financial system now push the West to change his idea about a new paradigm, a new world order with the push of the global South, you know, wanted to work with China and Russia and not with the West. So you have all these dynamics, this new paradigm which is going on and that pushed the Europe to change its policy. Let's turn to a very important issue here, and uh, the latest development on that is uh, China's special representative on Eurasian affairs, Li Hui, will visit Ukraine, Poland, France, Germany, and Russia from today on, actually, to talk about Ukraine. So he will be the highest-ranking Chinese diplomat to visit Ukraine since the war broke out. Professor Jian, how central is that to China-EU ties, and uh, how much... Uh, obstacles and how much chance does he have in making some progress there? Uh, Ambassador Li Hui's visit to Europe and also including Russia via uh, a very uh, positive action uh, to uh, promote the uh, peaceful uh, resolution on this uh, issue. Of course, this is a very, very difficult task for him and also for international society. I think his visit will um, strengthen the mutual understanding uh, between China and the uh, European countries. And also, I, I, I think his mediation uh, will, you know, um, also exchange ideas between 
all the countries he he will visit. Mr. Li Hui was China's ambassador to Russia before I actually yeah. talked to him in Moscow uh, when yeah. I visited uh, Russia a couple of years ago. But some people are saying that this fact um, erodes his neutrality. What do you say? Why does China choose a former ambassador to Russia as China's uh, go-between person to resolve the Ukraine crisis? Mm -hmm. I think this is a good factor to uh, to, to international society to promote uh, the peaceful resolution of this issue. Yes, you know, um, Ambassador Li is uh, was an ambassador uh, in Russia, so I think his knowledge, you know, on Russia and on this region will help him to uh, understand much more than others uh, about. Uh, the history, the reality, and the relations between Ukraine and Russia, and I think he also can, uh, you know, communicate well, uh, mm. much better. I think uh, with all sides, and uh, I think he's a very um, good person. Um, Aina, you mm -hmm. were having all kinds of mixed reactions <laughs> when I was talking <laughs> about the subject. What is it? Uh, why are you shaking your heads or nodding your heads? Well, I mean, this, I really see the point of this as being about China showing through actions that it believes in the principles that Jing Gang was talking about. He's gone to Europe after they've you know, said, look, we're trying to get Saudi and Arabia and Iran together, and there seems to be some progress there. There's no guarantees. But also in Europe, what they're doing is they're the one actively proposing peace, what's happening in the U.S. And this is as much part of the message as anything. It's what you do, and you can say whatever you want, but you're going to be judged by your actions. And this is what China's doing. They, they don't believe that they can convince uh, Washington to change course, but they do think that uh, by leading by example, they can uh, convert people, both governments in Europe and also people around the world, to the reality that they're not trying to start wars, they're trying to solve them. But Rick, how do you look at the... The, the centrality that the European Union has put on the Ukraine issue on China-EU ties, you know what I mean? Um, the foreign policy chief of uh, EU actually said without helping to resolve the Ukraine issue, and especially by putting reason into Russia's brain, um, it would be impossible for China and the EU to improve their relations. How do you look at that? I mean, is the Ukraine issue so big? that it has to overshadow the overall China-European uh, tie. I do believe it is central. And I do believe that, with, that, that, that as long as Russian troops are on sovereign Ukrainian soil, um, that it puts China in a very difficult situation. And uh, I'm hoping that having an envoy, a peace envoy, who was close to the Kremlin, is close to the Kremlin, uh, was, an on, what was, was the ambassador, uh, can be sort of a mini version of Richard Nixon goes to China, when only someone who was who, who in Nixon's case was a strong opponent of communism could come and change the world, change things. I hope that this is the case. I hope that he can convince uh, Vladimir Putin uh, to leave Ukraine, to to respect the sovereignty. But back to what you were saying, uh, it's very important because. Uh, Europe is united on this, that, that Russian troops should be out of Ukraine. But on the flip side, if China does manage to convince Vladimir Putin and then convince the United States to persuade or to put its, uh, its pressure on uh, the Ukrainian President Zelensky, and we do bring peace, I think that is a big, big plus for China. 
So I, I, think, I think that it has uh, great potential uh, to benefit China, but at the same time, uh, it, it, it is essential that, that, uh, that, that China actually get, res get a response, uh, convince mm. Russia to change course, oh. uh, to, to, to actually change the dynamic here right. in Europe. Okay, Ina, you, you well, can't I, hold I'm it. I'm going to disagree. I mean, Rick and I are good friends, and uh, we generally share opinions, but I, I don't agree with this. You cannot just purely see this as Russian troops on Ukrainian soil. I mean, Ukraine was put into harm's way by the U.S. knowingly going in and provoking uh, Russia. They knew that this would happen. And this is not just in the last year and a, and a half. This is something that goes back almost nine years now. So what is also essential is that there has to be security for both sides. So this idea of just saying, well, Russian troops off the soil, if China can do that, then you know, uh, Europe will uh, welcome them into the club. And it's nonsense. They, they see uh, China as a systemic rival. They see value issues. I don't think that, that that's correct. You have to look at the whole situation. It's not one-sided. All right. Rick, you want to react? Yes, I, I agree with Einar on that, that, that you can't just look at it, everything will be happy. But I think this is sort of a precondition of China changing its overall relations. And it I think it would build a lot of trust uh, if, if China right. could show uh, some results. Okay, Sebastian, um, do you see that as what's being expected of the Chinese envoy? The problem we have is with the people who want war. And there is a lot, you know, recently the Hudson Institute at the Jameson Foundation in the U.S. organized a conference called Preparing the Dissolution of the Russian Federation. You have the Rand Corporation publishing a report, say, say explicitly after Russia, China. So you have all these people fueling, you know, the situation. And that's the, the real problem China has today, because there is a lot of people inside the European institution who are in the same neoconservative narrative. And that's the big issue, you know. That's why there is a fight inside the institution. And that's the deal, because if we want peace, and China has understood that if we want peace, we have to replace, you know, financial speculation by physical production. We have to replace geopolitical confrontation by mutual development. That's the three, the, the peace plan that China has proposed. So we have to replace, you know, cultural imperialism mm -hmm. by a dialogue of civilization. And that's the point, that's the whole issue if you want to avoid a world war. Mm -hmm. That's why you have so much diplomacy right now, because we are okay. at the age of the world war. Many thanks to Sebastian Perimoni, researcher of Schiller Institute in France, Professor Jian Jingbo, Deputy Director of Center for China-Europe Relations at Fudan University, Rick Dunham, Co-Director of Global Business Journalism Program at Tsinghua University, and Aina Tangan, Senior Fellow of Taihe Institute. With that, we come to the end of this edition of The Point with me, Li Xin. As always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Li Xin in Beijing. You've got The Point.